Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled today to welcome Chris Garibedian, CEO of Zontogeny, to the show. Thank you once again for joining us, Chris. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Bell. Let's kick things off. Chris, can you share a brief intro with us? I spent uh, yeah most of my career in the biopharmaceuticals drug development. I'm in my 30th year working in the industry. The first 25 years was largely serving in operating companies. I actually started out in consulting to the pharmaceutical and biotech company to the industry. And then I went to Abbott Labs and worked in their pharmaceutical products division. Now it's known as AbbVie. It's since spun out, but that was uh, very formative working with brand teams, R&D teams, doing new product development there, and then went into biotech. And so worked at Gilead and Celgene in uh, senior roles, reporting to the C-suite across medical affairs, uh, commercial development, business development, corporate strategy. And then I had a chance to be a public company CEO of what was at the time a turnaround story. Joined a company called ABI Biopharma, but refocused the company on rare disease. It was a genetic technology for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I renamed the company Sarepta, moved it to Boston, Cambridge, and was the architect of a program that has led to three FDA-approved drugs for that disease. And that was my first 25 years. In the last five years, I pivoted to be more of an investor collaborator of companies, working first-time CEOs, entrepreneurs, scientific founders, joined a larger multi-stage investor, Perceptive Advisors, uh, where I run their venture funds. So besides running Zontogeny, uh, which we describe as an accelerator, a seed fund, or a company incubator, we also, as a team, manage the venture investing for Perceptive. And so we're on our second venture fund. We have over $700 million of assets under management. With that strategy, mostly focused on Series A, leading or co-leading, we do some syndicate investing uh, with others from those venture funds. So yeah, happy to be here and happy to engage in uh, some interesting discussion. Happy to have you, especially because your background is so incredibly diverse and interesting. And as you mentioned, in addition to spanning so many different professional angles of the biopharma space, including consulting, pharma, now VC and incubation, you also have a unique educational background relative to a lot of leaders in our space. While many pursue degrees in science, you received your bachelor's in marketing. Can you tell us more about what led you to the biopharmaceutical industry? That wasn't necessarily by design. I think like a lot of folks, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do when I entered college. I, I wasn't one of those that 
we hear in the industry who knew in grade school that they wanted to be a doctor or a scientist. And I wasn't sure uh, what field I wanted to participate in. And I thought that pursuing a business career could be applied to many different industries. And so without understanding what industry I wanted to actually serve in, I decided to pursue a business degree and majored in marketing. That varied at at times uh, before I declared marketing as my major. It was advertising and journalism. And I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But importantly, I was a voracious reader across a myriad of subjects when I was in college that wasn't necessarily linked to my, my formal uh, education. And so I just read a lot about history and sociology and psychology and you know just philosophy and really became uh, a student of the world and learning more about that. And I think that served me well more than my business career in terms of how to figure out how to get connect dots and get things done. And to answer your question, though, how did I end up in the biopharmaceutical industry? Well, I started out in doing market research consulting for consumer product industries. And I was really fortunate in learning early in my career how to apply and be trained in both qualitative and quantitative market research techniques. And these are the same research techniques that you can apply across a lot of different fields of research. And so really started understanding statistical methodologies, how you can use information and develop conclusions from the data, understanding what was statistically significant and meaningful and what might have been statistically significant and less meaningful, how to separate signal from the noise. And so by learning that in uh, the consumer products industry, I came across a company that was doing this in pharmaceuticals. And they were a leader in the space. And I didn't think they would hire me, but they're like, you have all the skills we need and you can learn the pharmaceutical business. And so after, I mean, literally hundreds of projects that I worked on in that early consulting uh, role, I really cut my teeth on the industry and really understood uh, we were working with the top 20 pharmaceutical companies on all kinds of strategic issues, how they develop their pipeline, how they position their products, what launching into competitive situations and how they can differentiate what what motivates a physician to prescribe one drug over another. And so I realized at that point that I wanted to go to the client side, which is what we called it, and learn how to do it from the inside. And that's when I joined Abbott and was recruited into the market research department initially. But because I had experience, a lot of folks on the brand teams and uh, the leadership really caught notice because I was already pretty skilled and I had already been presenting to management teams at pharmaceutical companies on conclusions from our, our research studies. So that's how I ended up entering the pharmaceutical space. As a lifelong reader myself, I, I love that you mentioned that. And I, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper uh, into what you just ended on. How did your background in marketing and consulting, you mentioned it briefly, uh, really prepare you to excel in pharma and help propel you forward there? Well, you know, I, I think it's a combination of, of the inherent skills that one has and, and kind of a proclivity for analysis, right? And so I, I don't know that I got that through my um, experience or my education, but it was that inquisitiveness that, and that desire for analyzing things to understand them better that could be applied in any discipline in any field. And so I think that was a big component of it is 
wanting to synthesize data and come to the right conclusions. The other thing that I think that I learned is that communication is important, right? Being able to shape a good narrative story around whatever you're trying to convey, it is how we become persuasive. So whether you're talking about an entrepreneur that's trying to communicate and be a persuasive management team or a CEO and trying to be persuasive and communicate why they should pursue this project and fund it, right? But I learned early that being a good communicator and having good communication skills with authenticity and credibility was important. And the best way to achieve that, I found, was through knowing your subject, right? If you get in front of a group of 200 people in an auditorium, let's say, you're going to be a lot more confident, secure in communicating a story and not being nervous if you know your stuff, right? If, you, if you're the subject matter expert in the room. And so it was a combination of becoming expert in the things that I was tasked to do and to speak upon and to understand that the opportunity to communicate a message clearly and concisely and persuasively were things that were really critical. So I'd say those two things. And then a last thing that I think is also important is understanding the big picture view. I always had this need to go a few levels up and ask the whys behind it. When we're, you're a little kid and you keep asking your parents, well, why is it like that? Or why, why does that have to be? And, you, and you, you run into that dead end where they don't have the answer anymore. And that is something I always had was to just keep digging in terms of understanding the whys and the motivations and the you know, incentive structures that are in place to drive something. So I think it was the combination of those three things, the analytical capabilities, the communication skills and importance of that and the big picture view. That's a phenomenal combination. And since consulting, as you mentioned, you've tackled a great many challenges across the industry, including the turnaround of Sarepta. Throughout this journey, what would you say has been your North Star, the guiding principle, if you will, behind your decisions? It's an interesting question. Part of it is this balance between what I was just speaking about is being confident in your area of expertise, but also to continue to be a student and to have humility in what you don't know. And I think that gives you this state of being where you're constantly wanting to learn and to become more expert that lifetime student, right? Like we should never stop being a student. And that was one of the the principles that, and I don't know if it was something I, I, it was, that it was purposeful, but it was inside. I just knew I always wanted to learn more and become better. And, and part of that is that insecurity of like, well, I need to learn this so that I don't get caught with a question I can't answer or, right, or to say, gee, I have no idea or, and so it comes back to that credibility issue and um, how you communicate is that it's usually coupled with this desire to make sure that you dug in and they even anticipated every question that might be asked. And, and there's also a little game, internal game theory where you're trying to play the other side. If, if you're, let's say you're in a debate it's like trying to anticipate what are the arguments I would make if I were on the other side and to be prepared to answer those questions. So 
I think that is kind of wrapped up in this whole ball of desire to be expert in something, to have humility, to always need to learn more, and to have that dose of insecurity where it just keeps you striving and to never be bold enough to make a statement on something that you're not expert in. I'd say those things. And and so how, how does that relate to a career path? I think it led me to be service oriented, right? I always wanted to serve the CEOs that I worked for and serving the vision that they had for the company. Whereas I would meet people across my career. They're like, ah, how did they get that job? Like that, you know, they have some real deficiencies. And I, you know, I'd always be like, well, yeah, but so do you. And, and they're probably in that role for a reason. And there's probably, if you can't see the skills they have, then it might be a blind spot for you because there's a reason that they are in the position, right? That they're in. And so I would always have this general reverence and respect for those superiors. And, and, you know, what's interesting is many managers and quote bosses that I've had over the years, they didn't have the same success career wise that I had, but I always felt that I learned something from each one of them and that it was an important kind of stop on my path, right? You know, like the train station, like I, I really needed to learn these skills and to make sure that I was learning in every position that I was in and trying to extract as much expertise and knowledge and know-how that I got from every situation that I was in, every manager that I worked for. And that extended also to peers and colleagues, you know, that I interacted with. So, you know, that's the North Stars is always learning, being humble and kind of making the most of the situation you're in from, from a learning standpoint. That's a phenomenal perspective. And I think it really ties back also to what you were saying earlier about the almost childlike asking childlike curiosity to keep asking why always feeling like you can learn more, always feeling like there's a deeper layer to go into that. That is great. And one question uh, we like to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor, the electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel prize in physics who said the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a provocative question. I, I, think, I think a lot about technology and I think a, a lot about, let's just take drug development or technology development. I mean, our you know, research and development by its nature is constantly building on knowledge that you found out from the previous experiment, right? So it's taking that information and saying, where do we go from here? right? That's true with almost anything you're doing, right? In research and development. And, and so, you know, you do a mouse model and you're like, you analyze the data and you figure out what's the next question we need to answer from this data. You're building and building and building. And if you do it right, you end up applying that information the right way. And you end up with a drug approval that's treating patients, that's having a real impact in people's lives. And if you think of that, again, getting back to the theme of going one or two levels up, just think about for a moment where we were as a civilization just 200 years ago, right? We didn't even have, you know, electricity in our homes. We forget about the plane. We hadn't even, you know, had a hot air balloon go up in the air to, to heights. We, if you had described what our civilization and how we operate with technology today to somebody who was alive 200 years ago, I mean, that it would seem like magic, right? And I forget who had that quote about just uh, the difference between kind of technology and, and, and magic is just time. And so 
I think this relates to this inventing the future. I think it starts with a vision and an imagination, like almost every book, sci-fi book in the 20th century, right? We're seeing a lot of that applied today, right? And so I think you have to have a vision and imagination. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs and, and what, you know, he communicated. And, and he had somebody coined this idea of the reality distortion field, that he would ask for something that was impossible. And lo and behold, be surprised by the ability to get it done, whether it was, I need this done in two weeks or whether it's like, I think it was one of the computers or the fan was making too much noise. And he said, look, I want a computer that doesn't make noise, but it doesn't overheat. And, and they're like, well, that's impossible. The, the structure of the mechanics, right. It would have to be bigger. And he's like, no, let, make, make sure we can get it done. And so part of it is this vision and imagination of the impossible that almost creates this reality distortion field that takes away those questions about it can't be done, right? And that's impossible. And I think that vision is important. And then trying to figure out what are the steps needed and what's the pathway to get there. And it has to fit in with the assumptions that are behind the technology that you want to apply to reach that objective. But I think that if you think about how much technology has advanced and how much it's accelerating, the doubling speed, let's say, I think that in many ways, it's easier to try to invent that future where we are today than it was 200 years ago, right? Because things are moving so fast on many levels in so many fields of technology development that I think it is much more just about vision and imagination and thinking, what do we want to what do we want to achieve? And I think the technology is advancing so quickly that almost anything you know, feels possible in this era. Can you share with us a bit more about design thinking and drug development? What is it and how did you arrive at this perspective? Across decades of being in the industry, we haven't really moved the needle much in terms of failure rates, meaning that if you look at the number of products that are brought into clinical development, and look at the number that get FDA approved. We live with 90% failure rates still. And if you go into those products that are put into a mouse study and it looks really great and drives a great press release, maybe a news item on the nightly news, the failure rate's 99%, okay? And I think that what I really speak about when I talk about designing drugs and drug development programs is to really challenge the industry to avoid the mindset that this is not a creative endeavor, that this is that we develop a compound, that compound is engineered to have what we hope are the drug-like characteristics or you know, affecting this target and you know, potency, selectivity, binding, affinity, whatever it might be. And that we just need to run it through a bunch of experiments and the drug will tell us what data is attached to that drug. And I want to challenge that because I do think that how you construct a series of experiments, which experiments you decide to run that compound through, design and structure those experiments, how you approach, let's say, FDA regulatory strategy, right? Your choice of what you're comparing against, right? Your positive controls, or do you do a, a translational model that the rest of the industry uses, or do you try to find a better one that there's no referenceable data for? But these are all choices. And I think that when you think about at its root, what makes a drug, right? It's not the molecule. 
Yeah, there's trillions of chemophores you can find in these big libraries and databases. It what makes a drug? It's the information that you attach to a given molecule, right? And the information that we attach to that molecule is a product of the design of the experiments that we choose to run that molecule through. And so I. And I have to say, this is another one that I was inspired by Steve Jobs, which he, there's a great kind of documentary of an interview with him. It was called The Lost Interview or something like that um, with Steve Jobs. And it was between his stint when he was at Next and before he came back to Apple and after he was fired the first time from Apple. And he had some really great management insights that I resonated with me. I shared many of them and I felt like, wow, I had no idea that this is the way Steve Jobs thought, and and it just resonated with me. And and it's what he called a disease. And he was talking about technology, obviously, like Apple technology, et cetera. And he says, it's a disease to believe that, that a good idea, right, like is the majority of the path to success. And he kind of wanted to make it clear that a good idea is 10% 10% of the path to success. And the real path to success is understanding the hundreds or thousands of trade-offs you're making when you're developing a piece of technology, right? To realize that vision, right? That idea. And, and that requires experience, a lot of thoughtfulness, learning from others that have had mistakes or competing firms and all that. And, and I think that that is what I arrived at design that every nobody disputes that you can design the next iPhone, right? Like Jonathan Ivey at Apple was, you know, famous for his design prowess, but nobody thinks that we design, right? Drugs in just normal drug development, right? And that's where I want to just encourage that this is as much a creative strategic pursuit as it is a, okay, let's just run it through these trials and figure out what the data tells us. <laughs> And then we'll decide if we, if the data is strong enough to keep moving forward or to kill it, right? So, so that, that's where the original kind of term came in, into my head. Well, I think that's a very powerful perspective, taking more charge in the drug development process and understanding that, yes, it is a very difficult pathway to succeed on, but there are many choices that you can make to better your odds of success in being able to develop a drug to treat patients. So you had mentioned a variety of design choices that scientists face. Can you elaborate a bit more on some of those key design choices that influence the probability of developing a drug? Yeah, so, so I think that, so first, everybody understands the concept that when you're starting at the beginning of a program, the number of choices that you have, design choices, we'll call them, but the number of choices you can make around a you know, molecule are very great, right? So there are infinitely number of choices you can make, but the further you go into development, when you're in looking at a bunch of lead compounds and figuring out which one we want to optimize and we don't have an optimized lead yet, the number of choices you can have on that program are far more numerous than if you're in a phase three study and you've already, you're just awaiting the data point, right? There's not much you can do at that point, right? So, you know, phase two, you have fewer choices than you have when you're in phase one or when you have your IND candidate. And so recognizing that it requires a lot more energy 
and thoughtfulness in early development. I've seen too often companies that are singularly focused on just getting a product. We have our first product in the clinic and they haven't done the requisite work of really understanding that drug, the dose response, the whatever translational models that might've run into understanding what the right regulatory path and strategy might be. And so part of how we apply it, and I'll say at Zontogeny, we do a lot of this because we do a lot of seed investments and really play a hands-on role in a lot of this. We are trying to anticipate those choices and what we need to learn and anticipate what uh, might be a gap if we design an experiment one way versus another. And so part of what we try to do is anticipate what we don't want to end up with in terms of a failed outcome and how do we try to correct for that ahead of time, (laughs) right? And that comes with experience. It comes with thinking through certain permutations. And, And again, what I said earlier, basing it on the data set that's been generated up to that point. You're always building on whatever data you have. And so what this may... Um, translate to is, let's say you have four lead analogs that made it through your screening process, right? You start with a library, you get some hits, you do some medicinal chemistry work, and you end up with four products that all of them people can say, these probably would be okay to bring into the clinic. Which one do you pick, right? And they usually come with trade-offs, right? They One might have more potency, but that might come with certain toxicity or one might have a better PK profile that might allow once a day dosing, whereas another one might uh, look better in terms of your safety margin and, and dose window. And you might be able to push for a higher dose, but it requires you to dose it two or three times a day. Well, is that commercially viable, right? And, and so these kind of trade-offs that happen even with an SAR, a structure activity relationship screen, where how do you trade off potency versus selectivity versus binding affinity rates? Sometimes it's you understand the target and the pathway and what off-target effects might happen. But, but these are the trade-offs you have to think about and anticipate. And this is when a, and I hate to say commercial-minded set, but it's really a competitive-minded set, right? You are developing a drug that likely isn't going to be approved for you know five to seven years, right? And you have to understand the competitive landscape and what is going to be a viable product to, for adoption in the treatment of a disease. And so that's where we, you've probably heard about target product profiles, right? Or TPPs, right? You know, that's why those things are important is to try to anticipate that. And so that is how we apply these key design choices and, uh, and that we continue that like through clinical development. I, I, I used the concept the other day, if, if you guys know the, the movie Minority Report, where they can connect a bunch of dots and try to figure out who's going to commit a crime before they commit the crime, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to connect the dots to anticipate what might go wrong to avoid that, right? And correct for that before it actually happens, right? Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. I think the allusion to uh, minority report is is a really interesting one. And uh, maybe to, to pivot this into the 
biotech space, a lot of our listeners are uh, either early stage entrepreneurs or aspire to one day found their own company. And uh, so for individuals at that point, what are some of these key design choices that are really crucial to get, quote, right at the very beginning? Yeah, I think it's it, it's understanding what your ultimate goal is. And so what we describe as our ultimate goal, right, you could call it our North Star for when we make an investment, is we're always thinking about that first clinical proof of concept study in patients. And when we make a seed investment, we're thinking that, okay, what kind of study do we need to do in phase two if we pursue this? drug for this indication, right? And how many patients would we need to show? What are, what are the endpoints we're trying to meet? And how, do we, how would we need to power that? Because what we ultimately want to demonstrate is that we can produce a clinical data set in a well-designed, constructed study that is beyond reproach in a group of patients for an important disease, right? Now, one thing that has been universally true. If you produce a data set, like I just described, that always creates value in biotech, right? That, that's when you open up the Wall Street Journal and there's a biotech that's up 200% in one day. They've unveiled a clinical data set, right? That people weren't expecting or was better than they thought. And that is our ultimate goal. And so when you back that up, and you're thinking about analyzing one rodent study that looks pretty interesting and compelling and enough of a reason. Well, we want to reproduce that. Is there, a, is there another better model that we can do? Maybe in rodents, is there a larger species model we can do? Do we need to do more PK distribution work to really understand, right, if this is going to engage the target at the site that we wanted to? Do we need to get better dose ranging findings, right? Should we look at other applications, right? Are there other disease models that we might want to look at, you know, for how this might work? These are all things that are important to understand how to optimally develop it. And so I rattled off a bunch. I don't think there's any one single answer, but it's coming up with that early stage program that we, we can talk about design as an individual experiment, or we can talk about design as a whole program. The design of the entire program that comes together with all of the information you need to give you the confidence to have a good meeting with the FDA about how you want to develop this drug. And being thoughtful about what's the fastest track to get it into that clinical proof of concept study, right? To prove safety and to satisfy the regulators so we can accelerate. We call ourselves an accelerator so we can accelerate the development and the success of this product and this program. So that's how we try to impress upon our founders, right? That you really need to be thinking about what are the key experiments that give you the meaningful data to drive success of the program. And that might not be a single study, it might be a constellation of studies. And that's typically when we invest in a seed is to do those early stage studies to de-risk it and to make it a more investable company at guess what, a higher value. So the founders and we can make an argument for the value we've created if we do it right. And then you get more um, interest in series A investment in, in those cases. So, so Michael, I hope that answered your question. Yes, it did. And I, I think it is important to, to kind of reiterate that there is no one general set of questions, but it must be tailored to kind of the individual's goals and, and, and the goals of the company and the technology. And I know I loved how you shared a bit about your approach at Zontogeny, trying to help these companies handle these questions at the early stages, because 
it is such an important time when, as you had mentioned, there are really an infinite number of questions and thus an infinite number of design choices to make. So let's pivot a little bit into Zontogeny. After spending four years at Sarepta, you decided to look for your next big opportunity. And instead of joining another large pharma or a high growth biotech, you decided to channel your experience to help startups succeed. So what led you to start Zontogeny? Yeah, there were a few things. I think as I think about it, there are probably three main drivers. The first was just a realization that there was a need. And this came about before I knew what I was going to do. After I left, I was getting reach outs from these scientific founders, entrepreneurs, first-time CEOs that need that wanted help. They knew they needed help. They wanted somebody with industry experience. And I was getting reach outs to say, hey, will you be my chairperson or uh, an advisor or join our board, et cetera? Will you help us walk into the VC offices <laughs> and help us pitch all of this? And so one, the first thing was there was a need out there and I saw a gap that was not being filled with many of the other VCs out there who were moving toward this more company creation, build a big you know, team, industry experts and find a technology and, and not really embracing the entrepreneur uh, fully. The second was I personally wanted to create leverage from all my experience to have a bigger impact. And so I felt that I could just take a bunch of board seats, take some free equity, attend a board meeting every quarter and hope that I could influence that the, the program would lead to success. But I also know from my experience that that is the quickest path to these companies failing if I couldn't play a more active role and couldn't drive it better. So I felt the best way to create leverage with my experience was to to build a team like a biotech leadership team that could help me manage a portfolio of these companies actively, meaning like week to week, helping make decisions on these seed investments. And I wanted to make, have flexibility in making larger seed investments than a few hundred thousand dollars, et cetera. So I felt like to scale this, I needed to raise money. And, and the third reason I started Zontogeny was I felt it was the best way to apply my experience. I, I felt that we're, we always should try to figure out what is our highest and best use to the proverbial marketplace. And I felt that this was a way of applying what I learned over 25 years, now 30 years of experiences to, to apply that. And so that's how it started. And I also, I think there's a, there's a, a psychic reward of trying to help the next generation of entrepreneurs and uh, helping create leaders and feeling like I'm paying back paying forward all of the mentors that I had across my career, who I learned from, one that passed away last year, John Martin, uh, who was the CEO of Gilead. And I've learned from a lot of great um, leaders and peers uh, that I worked with. And so part of that was giving back to the next generation and trying to impart what I learned to them through this kind of vehicle and this type of kind of immersion you know, process. Well, that is really impactful. You have mentioned once that from your perspective, you saw that the industry was not limited by necessarily the rate of technological innovation or funding availability, but it was rather limited by the availability of quality drug development leadership and talent. Could you elaborate a bit more on this? Why do you think this is and what obstacles are, are limiting the availability of, of this leadership? Yeah. Well, the first is, remember, we, we live in a industry with 90% failure. Okay. So there's a lot of people who have been attached to failed programs out there who have experience, maybe many years of experience, 
but I like to focus on the talent that has had experience in successfully getting a drug through development because it's very, very hard. <laughs> it's very rare. And so when you're part of a company that helped get drugs approved, and I was fortunate to have worked for two of the more successful biopharma companies, Gilead and Celgene, that shaped my experience. Even the Abbott experience was very favorable when I was there. We had a lot of success with their pharmaceutical division. But so, so part of it is that you need to find talent that actually has had a track record of success and has helped drive that success. The other reason that there's a talent gap is there's this, it's still a relatively young industry, right? I mean, most would say the industry started in 1980 with the Genentech IPO and, you know, really start to mature for probably another 20 years when we had, you could count on two hands, the number of, you know, commercial stage, profitable, independent biotechs, right? You know, the, the Gileads, the Celgenes, the Amgens, the Biogens, those have been acquired like Genzyme and Celgene and, and, and Regeneron. There's others that have come through, but you can still probably maybe count to 20, right? Those that have become profitable, independent, you know, repeat successes and have beaten industry averages in terms of how to do this. So when you look at the thousands, of, there haven't been that many successes. And, and that's why often we recruit from those big biotechs. And also that it's harder to translate those from big pharma, which is a different skill set. They work with larger teams. It's hard to find, you know, team 50 that's worked on a, you know, a clinical development program. Who was the one who was reviewing the clinical protocol and editing the inclusion exclusion criteria and, and helped it lead to success because they were obsessing over some of these design choices that I was talking about. So I think partly it's, it's hard to find the best fit for a pharma executive to come in and then be that leader of a biotech. And essentially it's kind of a glorified project manager. You need to understand regulatory and clinical operations and biostatistics and uh, regulatory affairs and uh, GXP quality. And so that doesn't always translate if somebody's been in a department rising through the ranks in a pharma company or, or even a commercial leader for that matter, or a business development leader, really understanding the mechanics of drug development is really critical. And so I, I think that is why, and the reason I say there's an abundance of science is that there's great papers being published every week and were these scientific projects that probably should get funding, but the bottleneck is not the cool science. It's the teams that can actually develop the right way. And we all know that there's not been a, a, a scarcity of capital, right? It's been an abundance of capital, maybe too much uh, at times. And so I think that's why I continue to talk about this talent gap for what I call drug development, which we really need to stop thinking about science and business or R&D and commercial. We need to start talking about research and development. And development is a very different discipline than the, the, the scientific research that, that's done in a lab and drives some, a really cool paper in nature. That's an interesting perspective, trying to separate the discussion from being disciplinary per se, to being focused a bit more on the functions, which are actually driving value in our world and helping to develop the drugs. So for those that are interested in, in getting involved, starting companies, or they're in the kind of entrepreneurial space and they're interested in working with Zontogeny, what is Zontogeny doing to help raise the next generation of leaders in drug development? Yeah, well, it's, it's really, I, I used the term earlier, it's an immersion process. And what I mean by that is, I'll, I'll, I'll share an anecdote. When I was at Gilead and Celgene, 
we were, we had a lot of cash, we were profitable, right? We had a big stock currency and every biotech out there was knocking on our door. Hey, will you partner with us? Will you license our drug? Will you acquire us? And inevitably we would meet with dozens or hundreds of management teams of biotechs to evaluate these technologies. And in many occurrences, probably the majority of them, we would have a full capable team around the table and we'd be like, Ooh, why did you do that experiment? Or, Ooh, how come you didn't look at this range of doses? Or, gee, that wasn't the best regulatory interaction. Why did you ask that question? Like, we would always be questioning their choices early on. And we weren't going to go back and redo everything, right? And so we would pass on a lot of things that otherwise had good technology. And so one of the, the things I wanted to start with as ontogeny was to be involved from inception, from the beginning, right? I mean, ontogeny, not zontogeny, but ontogeny is the idea of genesis to maturity of a living organism. I wanted to do that with a biotech, right? To be involved from the beginning and from inception, from genesis. And so, and the reason for that is I didn't want the mistakes to be made. And to do that well, we need to be on calls with them to talk about these choices, talk about the experimental design, talk about what we should be doing, talk about the challenges with a formulation and CMC scale up to talk about regulatory strategy and what questions should we be posing to the FDA. And when they experience not just me, but my entire team on almost weekly calls with all of our seed portfolio companies, it's an immersion and they're almost being part of, it's like transporting them back to those development team meetings at Gilead or at Celgene where they were learning from really experienced leaders in the space. And just like I learned how to do this through that process, I wanted to reproduce that for this next generation of entrepreneurs. Seems very powerful for a lot of founders who could really use the advice as we had mentioned. How would you describe the ideal first time founder when you're identifying potential teams at Zontogeny? What are the defining characteristics of him or her? Well, one of the things that encouraged me to start Zontogeny was before I announced what I was going to be doing, there were a lot of entrepreneurs that were reaching out and admitting that they had gaps, they needed help, they knew their technology, they knew what they wanted to do with it, they might have brought a lot of passion and intelligence and expertise, but they knew they hadn't had decades of getting drugs through the development process and regulatory process and commercializing them and all that. And so that had to come with a humility to say, I need help. Okay. And that is when I realized that, look, this is a self-selected group of entrepreneurs who are seeking me out because they followed my career and uh, feel that I could bring something to the table. And I think it starts with that. It starts with recognizing that hey, maybe this collaborative model where they're going to help me and they're not going to jettison me and say, oh, you don't have any experience. You can't be the CEO. And so we're going to find somebody that has decades of industry experience. We started it because I wanted to have a model where we didn't have to right, throw them out as CEO. And, and part of that is because none of my team and nor do I want to assume these CEO roles but we do want to be very involved in the choices that are made. These design choices, we wanna be very involved in making sure these mistakes, this minority report approach doesn't happen, right? Because now we're investors also, but now we're 
in the same boat. We have a vested interest to make sure that it's done right. And so we really do roll up the sleeves hands-on, right? And we essentially operate as a shadow management team, but we're respectful, supportive. We want to provide as much mentorship and coaching and advisement to these entrepreneurs. So it's not like, hey, we're taking over. They are part of the process and they have influence and they make us think differently. And they, because remember, they're doing this full time. So they're going out and they're reading the papers and they're talking to other people. And we want the benefit of them sharing that with us. And then we can bring our experience and our expertise and the context of our perspectives to the table while they're spending 100% of their time trying to get it right. And I think that to me is when the real magic happens because what I experienced in my own career was nothing beat the combination of the scientist who knew that program better than anybody and the, I'll call it drug developer, who knew how to take that interesting science and move it through development successfully. And I think we lose a lot of that when, and I'm not saying all VCs do this, many uh, try not to, but a VC that says, well, we're going to put you to the side. They ring fence the scientific founder and barely ever engage with them and interact with them. And they bring in another CEO and that sometimes those are toxic relationships and they bad chemistry and the science is like this guy or, you know, doesn't know anything about uh, my technology and they're, they're messing it up. And you see a lot of like board battles that ensue in these situations. And oftentimes it's the scientific founder that loses out. And so I didn't want um, us to lose that synergy that occurs between the scientist and the you know drug developer. So I'd say beyond the humility is that collaborative spirit and willingness to learn and adapt and listen and hear our point of view and to not be fixed. Because the worst thing you have is a, a stubborn, ego-driven you know, founder that doesn't see it as a collaborative endeavor and sees it as, well, this is my company and this is what I want to do. And so anyway, I hope that helps with, with what characteristics we look for. So Chris, as the influence of platform model companies continues to shape the bioeconomy, how will investing in biotechnology evolve? Yeah, if you go back historically and look at the types of companies that received investment, there was a time that platform was out of vogue and nobody wanted to touch early stage platform technologies because it took too long to get something into the clinic and, and it was hard to value them. And they were very rarely the the, the product of an acquisition. So you had to figure out how to take those IPO. And we've been in an era in the last you know, eight to 10 years where those platform technologies have been in vogue and they've been able to go public at high valuations, right? Just think CRISPR, you know, gene therapy, all of these that Moderna, mRNA technology. And I think this usually swings back and forth. And I think we might be entering into a period where people are saying, well, what's your first product and what disease is it going to treat? Because this is what happens when the exuberance ends and we have to get back to fundamentals and basics. Now, I'm pleased and happy that there's been so much private equity flowing in to developing these technologies. That's good for the industry to advance these. But from an investment thesis if you can't take those companies public at a billion or $2 billion of valuation, it starts to get hard to advance them because they require a lot of capital as opposed to a product that can generate some clinical data that can, that can move very quickly, either as an IPO or an M&A candidate. So 
That's why we've tended to focus more on product driven stories that might have an interesting technology attached to it, but we're focused on that, that getting it into the clinic and getting some clinical data. Historically, founders in biotechnology have come from academia as professors or newly minted PhDs with deep knowledge and a personal connection to the science that they were pioneering. Now we are seeing more and more companies founded by venture capital, led by venture associates and later seasoned managers. So who will be the founders of the future? Well, you hit on one of the key things that we, we've touched on a bit, which is the, the lack of talent. And even, even the top VCs will, will tell you that finding top tier management teams for all of their portfolio companies is hard. It's very competitive. So we only have so much of that great talent that understands drug development. And, and that's just one VC struggles. Imagine the 20 VCs that are trying to recruit those management teams. But I also understand it because they know that that's the key to success is finding the right talent. And But I do think that the Zontogeny model that allows experienced executives where I'm not going and taking a CEO role, but I'm helping shepherd a portfolio of companies and mentoring CEO, future CEOs at the same time, I'm seeing more of the Zontogeny model pop up. And I wish more with my background and experience would jump into the fray. And I'm seeing some of that happen. Lonnie Mulder, John Marganori, they're starting to spread their experience across a portfolio of companies. And, and so I think that you're going to see more of the founder-led companies if the Zontogeny model can thrive and prove to be successful. And I hope they pay it forward and they train and mentor and educate the next generation of CEOs. So I think the world in biotech will exist with both because there will always be those executives who are looking to lead a company and want to be the CEO and the C chief medical officer and the CFO. And there will be hopefully others like me that will be willing to support and invest in and mentor the early scientific founder that doesn't have decades of industry experience. Before we come to a close, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off, Chris. First and foremost, what advice would you give to students who aspire to lead their own biotechnology companies? I would say, talk to a lot of people about your idea. Don't be afraid. Oh, I don't want to share my idea with anybody. Talk to people about what you're trying to do. Learn from them. It's a great opportunity to network. You might find people who want to help you and be advisors. Don't make that choice too early. I have too many examples where they give up equity early with a bunch of advisors that ultimately have to be replaced and didn't add value and all of that. So, but you can get free advice. Many will give free advice. I will for sure to, to students and, and early, you know, you know, career entrepreneurs. But the main thing I would say, the reason you talk to people is what is going to drive value? What are the data points that I need to show that might make this an investable company and help me understand how much it's going to take to get to that point where I can raise that money. So start small, start with what do I need the seed investment to look like to get to the next de-risking value inflection? That's the most important thing. And you need to get help in doing that. And, and, and that would be definitely advice for the, the budding entrepreneur. Over the course of your career, we've talked about giving advice to others, but what is one piece of advice that has really stuck with you? Yeah, I think it is what I learned over 
a career, and I think many people learn this over their career. <clears throat> when I was young, I was all data analytical driven, and I would always um, jut up against senior managers, CEOs, right, VPs, et cetera, in my organizations. And they would almost go by gut instinct, okay? And I used to dismiss that. No, look at the data. This, no, you can't do this because of the data or this should work because of the data. And ultimately that data-driven logical approach was often wrong. <laughs> and that gut instinct was often right. And then I started to appreciate and realize that gut instinct is not a whim. It's actually taking decades of experience and connecting dots in ways that somebody earlier in their career cannot. And it's creating a flashpoint for all of that experience of kind of like, no, I've seen this before. <laughs> and I have many examples where we thought that that would work, but it didn't. And what we call gut instinct is actually a analytical, logical framework that cannot be articulated in a couple sentences for why <laughs> that person feels the way they do. And so I think that was something that I had to learn over time. And so I would encourage people earlier in their career to listen to those alternative viewpoints, right? That might not be supported by the data because there's probably data that's lacking <laughs> in what you're looking at and far more data that they've come across and experience that will lead them to their conclusion. So that, that's one thing that I would impart to, to those earlier in their career. Speaking of a lack of data, can we ask you to look into your crystal ball and describe, maybe with gut instinct, what biotech in 2050 will be like? Where will we be? Yeah, wow. I, I think, well, first of all, the understanding of the genetic basis of disease, the, the you know, biology of disease, I, I think we're going to understand the mechanisms far more because you, you just have to look at how far we've come in the last 20 years, 30 years, right? So we're going to understand and we're going to have tools that are maturing to be able to fix those problems. And so I think what you're going to start to see is something we've talked about for a while, but we haven't seen it in full force and practice is true precision medicine and tailoring customized drugs. I think you can move a lot of these technologies to bedside with showing that you can have quality and reproducibility. And you think about rare genetic diseases, many of them can't support a business model because there's just too few patients. I think you know, that's already starting to be addressed, but I think that will be fully addressed by 2050. And so I think we're going to see much more precision medicine. I think combinatorial uh, approaches will continue to move forward, but we're going to have to find ways to allow the business model to thrive with combinatorial approaches for particularly serious diseases. But th that's the best I could probably predict at this stage. It's an exciting future to be sure. And for Zontogeny, where will you be in 2050? <laughs> well, I hope that I'll be um, proud of the number of drugs that have been successful that we've helped oversee and invest in. I hope I'll be proud about the capability and success of CEOs that I've had the opportunity to touch and my team at Zontogenes that I had the opportunity to influence. And 
I hope I can maybe take it a little bit easier and not work as hard as I'm still working today <laughs> in 2050. And I hope I'm still around. So th that's the best thing yeah, I, could, I could hope for. Before we close, any additional thoughts or shameless plugs? Yeah. No, just that, look, this hopefully has reached an audience of entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs that might be researchers or postdocs, grad students, even undergrad students. And I encourage the entrepreneurial bug. If you feel it inside, reach out. That's what Zontogeny is here for. I give a lot of advice, mentorship, guidance to folks, even those that we don't work with. So you can reach out at info at zontogeny.com. Or I can be reached at chris at zontogeny.com or any of our team at their first name at zontogeny.com. So I really appreciated this, Chris and Michael. You guys asked very thoughtful questions. You did some research on me, and I appreciate that. And it was really a pleasure to be a part of this. And thank you as well for an absolutely incredible episode, Chris. We're really grateful for your time. And thank you again for all the work you're doing with such phenomenal founders to bring the industry forward. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.